Welcome to Energetic Radio. I am your host, Dale Sybottom. Join me each week as I bring you amazing guests and interviews from some of the world's best operators. They will teach us how to bring fun, energy, and joy into each and every day. Let's get stuck in. Welcome to episode number 92 of the podcast. And today we have an extraordinary interview for you. Now, before we start, um, this would be an interview that I recommend you don't listen to with children. So if you normally listen to podcasts uh, with kids in the car or at school or things like that, I would listen to this podcast before you do that. Today's today's episode with Jake Edwards is an outstanding interview. And um, for those who've heard of Jake, he has created an organization called Outside of the Locker Room. And we're going to talk about depression today, alcohol and drugs, um, and a few other sort of issues along those lines. So if you are struggling with any of these issues, please seek out medical help before you listen to this episode but um, as you will see this episode goes for an hour and a half and the reason being is that Jake and myself just had an amazing conversation and you'll be able to take out so many positives out of this interview that where Jake gets really deep and tells his personal story which um, I was blown away by and just listening to Jake and all the amazing work he does, it, I was so proud of the things he's doing and I know that people will get an amazing amount of value and content out of our chat today. So guys, please sit back, enjoy. This is my chat with Jake Edwards. podcast a huge warm welcome jake edwards how are you buddy good thanks mate thanks for having me not a problem mate now this is a very rare occasion that uh doing a podcast live in person your amazing offices mate it's a uh, very nice occasion now we're just talking a little bit off air mate you're uh, about to head off to south africa yes i am actually so we had to squeeze in uh this week <laughs> time to sit down with you mate so busy busy man like yourself getting around the country and yeah so off to south africa next tuesday so that'll be uh a good little trip for two weeks, yeah. Nice, mate. And that's after, obviously, footy season, pretty full on. Um, and I know we're going to get into outside locker room and everything you're doing, but um, is this sort of a little bit more quieter period now? Uh, yeah, it, it, traditionally it has been for the foundation, the program. I think everyone look at, looks at what we do outside the locker room. And with my background being AFL footy, everyone yep. uh, probably concludes that, oh, we must only be involved in football clubs. Uh, and probably 80% of our clubs currently right now are football clubs. So, yeah, it is a quieter period, but we've been able to drum up um, our program now and develop now moving into basketball and cricket uh, into the summer, uh, as well as uh, some uh, programs here around the soccer um, space as well. So, you know, cricket for us moving forward this summer will be a big focus on our program uh, with community clubs as well. Yep. Yeah, nice, mate. And I suppose that's all sporting clubs need it. And we're going to obviously get into what you do and talk a little bit more about it. But um, just for people listening at home, uh, now, if you are listening with kids or anything like that, um, we're going to talk about a few things like depression and so forth like that. So maybe listen to this by yourself. So if you're a teacher, a parent, whatever, and then if you feel that it is appropriate to share with students, it's probably going to be a good thing. Now, uh, Jake, grew up in country Victoria, mate, like all uh, good people, yeah. I think, have. that <laughs> <laughs> <No>, wrong? <laughs> Not biased? No, no, not at all, not at all. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about that, mate. Obviously, growing up in a farm sort of environment, loved yeah, it. Yeah, did. Yeah, so I grew up in a little place called Exford, which is probably now considered the growth of population. might yeah. not be considered country Victoria, but it's certainly um, still now 
our farm environment. Uh, so mum and dad, it's in between kind of Bacchus Marsh and Geelong. So it's not too far away, but just over an hour from the city. But yeah, the farm environment, it's a hobby farm. Mum and dad uh, live there, they still live there, and our two older brothers. And we grew up in that environment, mate, where after school we'd come home and you know, jump on the dirt bikes and build cubby houses around the, around the um, paddocks and so forth. And, you know, but it, it, was a, it was a tough environment, uh, but one I'm very um, proud that I had the opportunity to grow up within. You know, my old man's a bit of an old school kind of character and you know, he, um, he was pretty hard on us growing up. So he taught us a lot about hard work and, and so forth around, around the house and doing our chores and stuff. And, uh, but yeah, look, I, I think well, what I see now with, you know, with our program travelling across the country and get the opportunity to work in what would be considered more remote rural areas. And I thought growing up how isolated I was, you yeah. know, but there's a lot of people out there that are completely isolated and remotely um, removed from what we consider to be, um, you know, kind of metropolitan living. So, yeah, look, it was a good time, mate, growing up, and I hope one day I can get the opportunity for my kids to grow up in a similar type of environment. Yeah, because obviously living in Melbourne and for people listening around the world, living in big cities is fantastic. You've got a lot of things, but I think there's something unique about growing up in the country, like you used to holiday in Tokemo on the river, and yep. mate, just what a life. Yeah, it is, it was pretty good, yeah, so mum and dad, um, you know, would try and get us up to Tokemo, the caravan park yeah. up there, we were yeah. talking about it off there earlier, and we got a couple of connections there, which yeah. is quite, quite funny, but yeah, I mean, what is it, Kill? we ended up, I think we moved from there when I was 13 years of age, uh, we actually uh, had a bit of a, a, a lifestyle change, I guess, for mum and dad, so we... They bought a house down in Ocean Grove, so we went from the river uh, growing to the beach. up. Yeah, to the to the beach, which which nowadays I, I actually prefer the, uh, the the salt and sand to the uh, to the river. But yeah, growing up, mate, like I said, we, we used to jump on the river and fish and you know um, wakeboarding and, yeah. and kneeboarding and all that type of stuff. And they're great memories. And we met a lot of great people along the way. Um, yeah, a lot of handful of people I still talk to today from from my years up in Tokemoor and around around those areas. But now nah, we get down Ocean Grove now, which is. Um, pulled it, got rid of the kneeboard for the surfboard. <laughs> You've really, uh, really sort of upgraded there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> some might say we have, yeah. That, but um, c- compared from the old Palms Hotel up in to- Tokemo there down to the Darwin Heads pub, um, some, would say, some would say we have. Uh, now, obviously, uh, growing up, sport was massive for you, and football um, was your career. Um, so, obviously, do you want to talk through a little bit of, I don't know, maybe your journey starting um, with yep. footy where you knew you were going to obviously maybe be able to make this into a career. Yeah, so I was the fifth player in my family to play AFL football. Yep. Um, so growing up, it was a, a big thing of my, my family. And what I say when I talk is, you know, using, help people understand, you know, if I was to give blood today, there'd be little footies floating around. You know? <laughs> it's, uh, it's just been a, a part of my DNA and I've seen it my whole life. I've heard conversations around tables when I was growing up and, you know, my great-grandfather played over 100 games, my grandfather played over 100 games, including a premiership. My, my father played over 100 games, uh, combined Richmond Collingwood and the Bulldogs and my cousin Shane O'Brien who played 250 games of AFL footy and then you know I think the expectation was there externally but I certainly had a lot of internal pressure on myself to to become that next player in my family and I had a conversation with my dad one day actually he walked into my bedroom and I had to pick between footy and cricket because yeah, I just got paid I picked to play for the state uh, in both codes and dad walked in he's like you know son you got to pick you know, which one you want to you want to pick because you can't keep doing both which and is a, a nice situation to be it is. people listening yeah. they'd love to be just the one you've got two <laughs> that's right yeah so and like you know it's like in a country area is you, all we had was sport yeah. really a sport or getting outside and doing stuff so you kind of you, you find ways to keep yourself entertained and cricket and footy I didn't really play cricket in the summer because footy wasn't on and, and I just <laughs> yeah. happened to become okay at it so I uh, had to pick, and my old man said, that, look, you know, you've got to pick one. So as he, as he said that, he turned around, he went to walk out of my door, and he stopped. 
And he turned around. I'll never forget. He pointed at me and he goes, "But you know the family history in footy, don't you?" <laughs> so I certainly felt the expectation. But look, I was lucky enough in 2005 to get drafted to the Carlton Football Club. Uh, picks 36. But it was Mark Murphy's year. Behind Mark Murphy, Josh Kennedy, and Paul Bauer went to the Carlton Football Club, and yeah, we'll down at Ocean Grove and. On the lead up to the draft, I, as a 17-year-old, we don't have that anymore. You only get drafted as an 18-year-old now, but I was a bottom-age kid. I still had another year to come and get drafted the year after. Do you, do you wish that if times had changed, that might have been different? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. And a lot of people ask me that, and I wish I... I'm not saying I wish I got drafted. Yeah. I wish I probably had have had, um, I guess, some more awareness around at the time in yeah. terms of I wish I was where we are today yeah. at the time. and. Uh, just another year, I think, playing under 18 footy. I probably I would have maybe got drafted as a top 10 pick next year, just yep. given the fact I was that year was only Joel Selwood and Nathan Jones before me um, they, got, they got drafted. So um, there was a chance I, I could have held over the following year, and that was my decision at the time, but any young bloke's not going to really listen to that. You You're want not going to gonna knock back the No, chance. correct. To play a professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. So, it, you know, pick 36. My name um, didn't get called out uh, early, and I, I spoke to a couple of clubs. I spoke to Frio. Uh, Melbourne, Port Adelaide, Sydney, but I never actually had one word to the Carlton Football Club. Really? Yeah, I never spoke to them. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know, um, you know, if they were even interested or, or what. So to get called out by them at pick 36 was just as a surprise to me as, um, as anyone. So, but having said that, it was a, a really proud moment. One thing I'll never forget, I had a lot of family, excuse me, a lot of family and friends down there and it was, uh, yeah, it was a really family orientated, honourable moment to, to become an AFL player and the next phone call I got was from Dennis Pagan, um, who was the coach, and basically, you know, pack your bags, son, come in on come Monday, down. and we've got our time trial. So, uh, <laughs> nice way to get started. Yeah, it was. And like I said, this is 11 years, or longer now, 13 years ago. So, uh, it wasn't like they are now. That, you know, we don't, we didn't get wrapped up in cotton wool. We we were straight into it. So, which I really enjoyed. And um, yeah, my experience early on with the Carlton Footy Club was a real positive one. Yeah. Um, so when you when you got got drafted, was there? I know it's obviously pride and. You were very thankful and things like that. Was there a bit of relief with what you were saying about your family history? Yeah, there was a massive relief. Yeah. There was. Because I, 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 I knew I had another year to go, but you don't want to leave things to chance. You don't know what would happen. You don't know. You can yeah. get injured or you know things might not work out yep. your way. And um, I think more so the relief was for myself personally, but I, I can really remember um, you know hugging my old man for the first time and just feeling you know how proud of that they all were. Yeah. And I felt like, okay, it's great, but I... I being drafted is one thing, and I guess I didn't. Uh, you go from a big fish into, you know, into a, a small pond into a really tiny fish into a, a large, yeah. a large aquarium. So um, <laughs> you get thrown into the deep end, which I really enjoyed, but I certainly um, probably misinterpreted um, what that might feel like in, in that in my first couple of years as an AFL player. But uh, the the relief was it was immense, yeah. But it really, it was just getting started. Yeah, and then so let's talk about obviously at AFL level now. And for people listening around the world, that's probably the best game in the world, Australian football. Um, if you don't know much about it, obviously look it up on YouTube. You could probably look at some of uh, Jake's highlights yeah, on there. It would be many. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about that. Dennis Pagan, for one. Um, yep. Pretty hard nut of a coach. Yeah, he was. Dennis was certainly uh, known for his uh, old schoolism and the way he approached his autocratic method to to coaching and that. But I certainly appreciated it. I felt like I'd grown up around that with my old man, very old school. And he grew up in Swan Hill, which is country, country, you know, yeah, Victoria. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I kind of adapted to, to Dennis really well. And because of maybe because of, I felt like he kind of drafted me, yep. I kind of felt like um, a bit more of a connection with Dennis. 
but he was certainly hard. There's no doubt about it. You know, I I thought I was training hard at TAC level. You know, I was in for a big shock. Yeah. You know, once we um, but Dennis and I got along really well. One thing I, re- I loved about Dennis was. Yeah, he's really hard, but he was really, really fair. So I was a typical 17, 18-year-old kid, and I was in his office every week asking him why aren't I playing AFL footy because that's just what I was trying to do. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, he'd always tell me just directly up front, you know, you're not ready, you're not, you're not good enough yet, or you need to go away and work on this or that. And I appreciated that direct feedback from him. And I've seen examples of other players being told direct feedback as well. And they'd go away and work on it and get better at it. And he would reward them with games of AFL footy. Yep. So I, I had the opportunity to kind of see uh, how it actually, how the system actually operates and yep. how it works. So Dennis was, uh, out of all my coaches in my time, Gary Ayres at Port Melbourne was, was my favourite. But Dennis would be up there right behind him. You know, I really appreciated his, um, his time. And then I suppose, obviously, um, in the system and... It is sort of cutthroat, isn't it? There's 30 or 38 or 40 players on the list. Um, yep. You are a team, but you're competing, obviously. And at the end of the day, it's a job. Yeah. Um, how, how was your experience, first couple of years, in the AFL system as a professional sportsman? Yeah, it is. I think early on in my career, you, you get caught up in, in I guess, uh, you know, being drafted and everything that comes along with it. So, you, you know, you're on pretty good money back then. It's not as much as they are now, but... Uh, you start living by yourself, you get yep. more responsibility and you get access to all these different things like you know gyms and all this you know, Pilates and yoga and all this stuff you've never done before. So you get caught up in the pro- professionalism of it. Yep. Uh, but for my first two years as an AFL player, I think it was about adjusting myself as a young, as a young man. And one thing I didn't expect, however, were, was a lot of external people's opinions on myself as a person. And um, I think that comes along with the becoming an elite athlete and I didn't I hadn't been a, a, accustomed to that and we see that today in social media and online oh, the people's opinions and what they can say but back then we didn't have that yep. uh, but people would actually say it to your face which um, can at times be a quite confronting experience <laughs> yeah. yeah and with my family name and how, how nice that pedigree is what brought with that again was another level of expectation on externally and People were saying direct things such as like, you know, you're not really even that good. Uh, you're only playing footy because of your last name. So there's yep. a lot of things that come with it that I didn't expect. And I actually spent the first couple of years of my career wrongly actually trying to prove people wrong and actually trying to show people that I, be- I deserve to be here. And now at the age of 30, I know wasting time trying to impress people is, is, you know, is a waste of time. So, uh, But back then when you're 17, 18, being told you're not good enough yep. and this is why, you kind of have a bit of a chip on your shoulder. So... I thought that becoming a footballer was just basically kicking a ball around, enjoying yourself, but it kind of hit me pretty hard once I realised it was probably a little bit more than that uh, because I was representing myself and my family and everyone else around me. And uh, I guess it brought on a lot of stress and anxiety early on in my career, which I wasn't familiar with. Um, And just like a typical young... A young male or young female now playing sport, you know, I had the expectation I should be playing AFL footy every week and, you know, when that wasn't happening and, you know, on the outside things aren't going quite well. So the first two years was enjoyable. Um, It's a big shock to the point where the work rate and what you have to do and how hard you have to work. Uh, And at the end of my second year, actually... I, uh, it's funny, it's at the end of my first year uh, under Dennis Pagan, because Carlton weren't very good that year, well, I think we finished on the bottom of the ladder, and I thought, oh, maybe I want a chance to play the last play game, games, yeah, yeah. play a couple of games here, and the, the last game was against Sydney up in Sydney, and what happened was is that I, um, I got named in the squad, and I think, oh, yeah, I might make my debut here, because there was no, the club didn't need to win any games yeah. and all that, so... Anyway, so I went home to the farm on that Thursday night leading to the last game. And on, on SEN, which you'd know is a local radio station here, which is all about sport, 
um, they read out the teams and the guy on the radio actually read my name out uh, in, in the starting 22. Oh. And I'm sitting around the table with my mum and my dad and that, so we're just lost our minds. <laughs> so, well, you know, I've just felt like I've made my debut yeah. and my phone was going off and so forth and I was excited. Anyway, I went in the, into the club the next day and I actually I didn't get picked, I was emergency. Um, oh. So that stupid SEN guy <laughs> got ahead of himself and, and named me um, and I obviously went from a real high to a real, real, real low. Real low, yeah. Anyway, you get over that and you move on. And then the following year, at the end of my towards the end of the year, we had a coach change. So Britt Ratton had come in, taken over Dennis Pagan. And, and then what happened then was is that there's four games to go and De- uh, Rats had come to me in the locker room and said, mate, just get through this week. You're going to play the last four games of the year. We want to see where you're at and you can get a taste for it and move on. And once again, mate, I was like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. And all I had to do was get through that one game of VFL that week. And I remember I calling mum and dad and my mates saying, I'm going to make the debut next week, which was against Port Adelaide at the time. And I went out that week. We played against Werribee in the VFL. In the first quarter, I ended up, I ended up dislocating my ankle oh, uh, no. in, in the first quarter. So it's just funny how it kind of all worked in my first couple of years. And I get asked a lot now around... Yeah, you know, was there a moment or was there a catalyst kind of moment where I guess mental health for me and depression really kind of kicked in symptomatically at the time? And I feel like probably a lot of the ups and downs that I had in my first year was um, you know, contributing to my mental health and my mental fitness. And at the end of that second year when that incident happened, I got really down and really low and I thought this isn't going to happen for me, it's just not meant to be. And Carlton um, committed to me on a, another two-year contract, so I had some... Um, you know, I guess some backing there. Stability. Yeah, a bit yeah. of stability, but I also knocked back a three-year contract at Melbourne. So looking back now, I probably wish I had taken the Melbourne that, yeah. contract, especially where they're at today. But, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, right? Um, so yeah, so I wanted to stay loyal and stayed at the club and um, got myself back and started, had a really good pre-season after the rehab in my ankle and and, uh, and made my debut round one, 2008, uh, in my third year of my career. But the thing is, is that when we look at athletes and people in general, but especially athletes, because we're in the, in the media or we're in front of people and we're role models, whether we like it or not, people have the expectation, perceivingly, that we have our, have our lives together yeah. and, you know, we're behind the scenes, round one in that game, um, you know, watching the footage and the photos that come with it, people would look at me say, as a young, fit, healthy, young you know, person who's yep. living his dream and got all the money and all the success and that. But behind the scenes, Dale, mate, I was going through a really tough time. Like, yep. Symptomatically, I was experiencing depression and I, I hadn't heard of the word depression in terms of mental illness. I heard of people say things like, what have you got to be depressed about? But I never, I always knew it to be sad, but not yep. really symptomatically what it meant. And behind that, what it actually, what I was experiencing was getting out of bed, you know, I couldn't do it, I couldn't find the motivation to bounce out and do this one thing that I loved and wanted to do my whole life. So that caused a lot of frustration, a lot of anger because I was concerned about it. I didn't understand it and it really annoyed me because I should be bouncing out of bed and I should be getting off the training and I should be doing all these things. There are things as well that you just think that should happen. Like, yes. and, and that's not true. And no. like that's not a little thing. Like There's trolls today on social media and Pack they were probably trolls to your face. Yeah. Social media when there was was there things put in place by Carlton or the AFL to educate you? Were there things there those days to actually teach you how to deal with people like that? The short of it's no. Yeah. No. Um, there was no awareness around mental health. There was no programs in place. In fact, what we had at the time is very around that same period I was going through. The club actually introduced a psychologist into the club. Okay. 
but it was very much performance based. It was around kind of preparing yourself to play games of footy. It wasn't holistic. It wasn't wellness around your, your own mindset yeah. outside of the game. Uh, and to be honest with you, the guy that we had come in was a bit of a flog. And you probably um, you probably a, didn't want to go to him as a young bloke and say he had these concerns. No, absolutely because not. You don't know if he's going to report back, and you want to play footy. Correct, and that's exactly the stigma that held me back from getting help early. Yeah, is that I didn't want my teammates to think that I didn't have what I took to play an AF, to become an AFL player. I didn't want him, you know, saying something to the coaches. Therefore, they're not going to be confident in my ability to play and mentally be prepared to play games of AFL footy. Um, and yeah, like I said, my experience firstly uh, ever with a psychologist was that this guy just doesn't really connect and doesn't have any idea about yeah. uh, what's going on for anyone except for what it takes to kick a footy around. So yeah, once again, it contributed to that kind of stigma around getting help early. Uh, and over that third year of my career, I just held on to things and thought it would all be fine. And I, I validated it thinking that this is what it's like to be, to be an AFL player, the stress, the anxiety. I mean, I always get anxiety attacks where I couldn't drive my car. Really? So it just like... It, it, it would freeze me. It freeze so me up. What does that feel like? Like people tell me like it's just crippling, like you can't do yeah, anything. You can't, yeah. So what... In terms of physiologically, what it does is that your, your mind... For me, what happened was my mind would get so frustrating and angry that I'd start telling myself stories and that that perhaps weren't true and then my heart rate would increase so fast in a short period of time and it it pushes blood really fast to the surface of your skin, which is in your capillaries. And it would do it because it would happen so quickly. You'd kind of have a freezing motion. You see this a lot in... Uh, those funny videos of goats. You know when you scare goats <laughs> and they freeze up and yeah, they and fall, fall over. over. Yeah, so it's kind of like that's kind of a visual kind of way you can kind of think about it. But at the time when you when you when you drive in your car, you, you freak out because I mean I couldn't close my hands to hold the steering wheel of my car, so I had to pull on the side of the road and I'd have mum on the phone trying to get her to tell me what's going on, and I'd be in tears and that. And I just it was an emotional roller coaster, mate, for that third year. And, yeah. I just tell myself that this is part of becoming a footballer or an athlete because, you know, yeah, it's high-pressure environments and instinctual person. And so I'd get on with it and thought I'd be okay. And by the time, the, towards the end of that third year, it all just got too much and I had a bad game of footy and had nothing to do with the footy game. I played plenty of bad games of football. And I just had a meltdown, you know. I had a complete snap and I just emotionally was in a really bad place and I called the footy club and I ended up, I ended up quitting AFL footy and... I went back home to the farm and straight away after that game of footy and sat around the table with mum and dad and for the first time I had to start talking about where I was at and what was yeah. going on. And, excuse me. What, was, what, a, was that, what was that like? Yeah, um, it was confronting. Because like it's all well and good to go through things in your head but it's very easy to push them aside yep. until you actually confront. Yeah. And particularly with your parents. Like, yeah, yeah. Look, my mum knew, knew bits and pieces because yep. of the phone chats but my old man, as I mentioned earlier, is a really kind of old school kind yeah. of character and talking to him about my feelings and I've been crying most mornings and I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I just thought he'd give me a clip over the head yeah, and tell me to yeah. move on. And that in itself was intimidating enough mm. to, for me to sit around that table and not talk about it at all. But we had a guy, uh, Rod Ashman, who's an ex-Carlton champion, who was the welfare guy at the club at the time. Uh, he, he was in the uh, around that kitchen table also. So I was in a position where I just quit AFL footy and I had to start talking about what was going on because I was forced in that position now where my family are there, Rod was there, and they're basically waiting on me to explain why am I in this position. So as intimidating as it was, I, I, I started talking just a little bit. I didn't say a lot, but I was really intimidated by my father because I did think that he just told me to harden up and get on with it, and I thought that myself. And that's um, probably um, their generation. And I guarantee is, yeah. if, if your father had gone through the same things, yep. that that's what he, his dad would have done to him, you know, and I'm, I know that would happen to my father as well. But yep. I think... 
it's changing, isn't it? And it is, yeah. But you still felt yeah. that you were doing something wrong or that you you were weak or... Yeah, and, and the weakness comes with it, the... Um, you know, stop being soft comes yeah. with it. You know, all those type of things that come into your mind, which I now know how it is and why why we do that. But you know, once again, my my grandfather was a really kind of same thing, really hard and old school. And you're exactly right; it's a generational thing, and yeah. it's certainly growing up in those environments. But all I did was I didn't go into detail with with what I was going through because I think a lot of the time we we anticipate talking about it, taking courage to talk about what we're going through and explaining our, our whole story. But in fact. All I said was is that I'm not quite feeling myself. I didn't go into details about crying or anything like that. And, and the way my father approached that um, moment was the complete opposite of the, as to how I thought he would. Yeah. And it's a real kind of um, credit to him and what we see today with Are You OK Days and stuff yeah. like that. It's a great example as to how to, how to treat people that need support and may feel intimidated to talk about it. Because, you know, my dad lent into me, pulled his seat closer to me, put his arm around me and... The minute he did that, I just felt really safe and calm, yep. and you know, and I just started crying and just started talking about it. I and mean, my old man's really upset because you know he doesn't want his son being like that. And he starts crying, and you know, mum, she's lost it down yeah, the table, of and that. So look, it was a really great environment. I started talking about it obviously more and opened up completely. And off the back of that, went back to the football club, and because I had a contract, and I was encouraged by family to get back to playing sport and. And I sat down with a doctor, um, went through some, some tests, really kind of verbal type of things. And uh, yeah, and I was diagnosed with uh, depression, anxiety-driven depression. And off the back of that, mate, he gave me some tablets and I talk about which antidepressants. I talk about this today uh, during my, my speaking stuff around corporates, around if everyone, anyone listening to this, if you ever have the opportunity to sit in uh, a room of an environment like that where you've been diagnosed with a mental health illness or you're sitting next to a family friend or... or a family member and, and they're going through the same um, don't close off from it what I did at that time was that I grabbed these tablets from the doctor I stood up and I just walked out of the room and I, I didn't want to know about it I did just thought that these tablets would be my cure and save I, everything yeah and I could yeah. get on becoming a footballer and be as simple as that yeah. and, and life goes on where in fact for those listening that have been down the same path it doesn't quite work out that way and I want you to embrace mental health. I want you to, to become curious with it. And it's very easy, in my opinion today, to, to uh, want to educate yourself and learn about mental health with the resources that we have with online yep. stuff and ask as many questions as you can. Because I've, as you've heard, I've had serious injuries in the past and every time I've asked doctors and physios millions of questions. You know, when can I get back training? Yep. You know, when, when's my rehab? When can I do this and that? I remember text messaging my physio late at night because my knee was sore one time and you know but because it was physical and I could feel it and it made sense I, I found it easier to, to text message someone uh, where because it was a mental health illness and it's unsure and you still don't know what it's about I didn't really want to engage in any conversation yeah, after it yeah. um, so yeah if you find yourself in a position ask questions learn more find out what it is how it works how you, how you can support friends and family uh, in that specific moment because I, I've made a lot of regrets in my life and I'm sure we'll touch on the drug and alcohol addiction that I went through but I um, yeah, well, that's probably one that arguably one of the biggest regrets that I have is not finding one, out more yeah, not about, wanting to know more about and it and do you reckon that it would have been if you had a support system around you in that time yeah. you know like if your mum or dad had been there I know just my personally my mum would be I get embarrassed because she'd ask questions I, was, I think it was just a guy thing that yeah. I don't want 
I just want to get out of there because it's awkward. Yeah, like it that is. Sort of, yeah, I'd yeah. get taken, bang, I'm on, let's go. Yeah, move on. Do you think yeah, Do you yeah. think now knowing what you're knowing that obviously it's still, you can give advice saying, ask questions and things, but I still personally don't know if I would. Yep. Like, In that moment. Yeah, yeah like yeah. You, you don't know until you're there, I suppose. You don't, no. And I think it's about uh, taking a deep breath and just understanding yeah, mental health illness is, is that. It is an illness and it is treatable, uh, yeah. just like any other form of physical injury. And uh, there's a process that, that, that needs to take place and that process is no different to a rehabilitation of a physical industry, uh, injury uh, and it, it needs to be looked upon as a sustainable um, thing ongoing. I mean, I don't, I'm not cured from depression now. I still have bad days and yeah. moments and you know, I feel down but I've learned strategies and techniques over my years that, that help me bounce back quicker and don't spend as much time in it. So yeah. it is, you're right, when you're in, you don't know until you're in that situation how confronting it can possibly be. And we all react differently. Some of us just go, yep, let's get on, move on. And some, for sometimes that works for some people, yeah. you know, and then they can find their coping mechanisms and deal with it. Uh, but for anyone I feel who's in that position, you know, learn more, ask questions and, and want to find out what it is because there is such a misconception around depression in our societies, what it is and how it actually operates physically, chemically, biologically in our brains. But what we hear in community and media around things that people, you know, who make bad decisions in their lives, so let's say it's a murder or, a, or a, uh, an assault, what we see is people claiming mental health illness issues yeah. and stuff like that. And that can pile the stigma that we have around people getting help because yeah. why would I, as an everyday person trying to get out of bed, struggling to get through life emotionally, why would I get help uh, when I'm not a bad person? I haven't yeah. murdered anyone or had assaulted anyone. I'm, I don't feel like I have mental health illnesses. So we see that kind of stigma still yeah. attached to people getting help. But it's a, it's a great point you bring up around the, the moment and, and really seizing it yeah. and, and taking the opportunity to learn more. Um, and yeah, so that's when I was uh, when I was diagnosed, mate. And from there, and I thought it would get better, and it didn't. It didn't. And yeah. this is what I suppose people listening away are probably going to get into a couple of a little bit more in depth sort of yeah. stuff now. Mm-hmm. And um, so obviously after that, you went back to the footy club after having chat with parents and yep. the wellness um, guy. And um, then there's what sort of happened, like just. Yeah, well, well, it's just sort of like immediately it was kind of popping these pills every day and, and getting on becoming a footballer, which is a, a really bad mindset to have because I, all I accredited myself to becoming was Jake Edwards, the footballer. There yeah. wasn't anything else outside of that. And, and when the tablets I felt weren't doing their job and I wasn't feeling better and my emotions were still in and out because tab- medication can take up to three, four months. And sometimes, really kick in, yeah. It is. Sometimes, yeah. It's, it's, sometimes we, a lot of us get misdiagnosed anyway because we don't go along the path, you know, in, in a correct manner. But, and when that wasn't working, I thought, oh, you know, this mental health stuff's a lot of crap and, um, you know, these tablets aren't even working, it's a placebo. So I had that typical naive, ignorant male, um, uh, uh, I guess, response to depression. And I just stopped taking the medication, abused it, and just thought I'd get on with becoming a player. You know, so, you just, so how long did you give it a go? Like- yeah, I, I gave it a go for about... A good three months. Okay. Um, yep. So I gave myself what I thought at the time was a pretty good chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but as we know, it's a, a lot more more than that. And, yep. and then I just thought, you know, the one thing that I loved and one thing I, the one area and moment I felt happy was training, okay. you know, in football. Because when I was training and playing games of footy, I didn't feel like I had to worry about my life outside of it. So that for you was sort of like your mindfulness. You know, it was, yeah. you were present, you weren't thinking about anything else. No. But then once that stopped, I'm guessing oh, yeah, your, head just went, come your head just in. started doing backflips. Absolutely. And it almost was my first introductory to addiction. 
because when I was, had the football on my hands and I was training and I was worried about everything else but I guess my mental health, uh, I was fine. But then yeah. outside of that, when I leave the club, and I'd want to leave the club quickly um, to get to try and get home to get a, to get away um, from from talking to people about anything. Uh, I'd get home and just sit on the couch and not communicate, not talk, just isolate myself even further. And yeah, the emotions weren't going away. But once I was training and playing, it, it was fine. So yeah. I, I was just creating this real back and forth um, conditioning of behaviour in myself that clearly isn't um, a good thing. So that they were the highest lows again, as you're talking about that yeah. you were feeling really good high when you were training and playing but yep. then every other area of your life was low yep. you were probably just waiting to train again because that was the only time you felt good yep exactly right mate and I, it's just it was something that was breeding inside me which once again really I feel built a lot of addictive natures around my, my personality because when I was training in that I, I was really focused and clarified around what I was doing and uh, I had felt like I had a purpose and all these type of things and then when I left training or football, it just, yeah, my world would come closing in. It would literally feel it would close in. And then when my career, um, you know, come to an abrupt end, it wasn't on my terms. And in fact, the Carlton Footy Club offered me another contract. And what people, in my experience and with the work I do today, people who experience depression and mental health issues, what we will do is, is that we will jump to new environments to make ourselves feel better yeah. uh, for a period of time before instead you of dealing, come. Instead of dealing yeah. with the issues, you think by a new landscape, a new... A new, a new area. A, a new area. Good. Yeah, like a new team environment, like yep. a new relationship, a new job, a new clothing, new pair of shoes or a new hobby. All these type of things make us feel better. Yeah. Uh, but it's not dealing with the problem, which it was. And I, I thought the same. I thought I needed a fresh start. Yep. I thought maybe a fresh start would make me feel better, reinvigorate. And it did that. So I had an opportunity at a couple of clubs. And of all clubs that gave me the opportunity was the Western Bulldogs, where three of my family members have all played, including premierships at. So you felt a little bit at home as well, I When I walked in those those change rooms and my family's name was all over the walls and I just felt, how good is this? You know, yeah, I'm cool. home and yep. I, I felt reinvigorated. I had this real purpose again. I thought, maybe I'll, get, I'll extend my AFL career and this is where I belong. And I've never worked so hard as I did there for like nine weeks, I think it was, over that pre-season. And... So be it, you know, I had conversations with the, with the club and the coaching staff and, you know, the, the, um, the communication to me was that, you know, they picked me up and they were going to draft me in and I was really excited but come draft day, uh, things had changed, my name didn't get called out on draft day and that's where it all just kind of come crashing in, yeah. yeah. So I, you, I, you put all, obviously you didn't have a career, you didn't have anything outside of footy, so no, your, nothing, your yeah. life and, and that was your release. Yep. So then when... You know, your last sort of chance, you left Carl and you're at Westmore and they don't pick you up after telling you. Yep. So I can imagine the yeah. wheels just started, well, really sort of fell well, off. Well, they fell off. I remember I was sitting around the corner here in South Melbourne and Clarence Street and with my partner at the time having a coffee and the yep. draft was on. I didn't even listen to the draft because I'd been told I was going to get called out. And my phone had rang uh, and it was my mum and she, I spoke to I picked it up and mum was like, well, what's happening? Like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, your name has been called out. Like, what's going on? I'm like, are you, are you serious? Like... <laughs> And it just hit me straight away. My manager called me and explained to me what had happened. And, you know, I won't go into details of that conversation because it was a different one. Um, so and then once I hung the phone up, I, I remember looking my partner in the eyes and saying, I specifically said to her, well, what value do I have now? Wow. Like, like who, who am I? Wow. Because I, I attached football to my life. And 
even not just me, but everyone around me, so friends and family is always around, you know, what's Chris Judd like as a guy? How much can you bench press? Everything was around football, yeah, football. Yeah. But now immediately it had been just taken away. So you basically had nothing. It stopped. I had yep. absolutely nothing. I had no career behind me. As much as we were told to get ready for life after footy, yeah. I mean, I, I was what you consider to be an insurance player. I wasn't the best 22 every week. So I was focused on playing AFL footy. I didn't worry about my life after it. Yep. Uh, I didn't have any other interest outside of footy. And then I guess from there, the first 12 months after my career was about kind of trying to find my feet a little bit, um, trying to get involved in bits and pieces here and there. But, you know, I was on a rampage, Dale. I, I, I didn't want to be around football. I hated people in footy. I felt like uh, I was a victim. And did, they, felt, did you feel like they let you down in a way? Massively. Like, yeah. yeah, massively. I felt like the, the sport itself had... I'd given so much hard work I felt to it. I actually felt like AFL had given me depression at that time. Yep. So I became a really irresponsible and victimised person and pointed the finger at a lot of people and blamed a lot of people in my life because that was just me at the time. And, you know, I'd go out and party quite hard, you know, and that's how I, that's how I coped with it. And when you finish AFL footy, you, you get flown around the country to people try and poach you to play in different leagues in, and so forth. In, and like, in like your major leagues, like yeah, in, Waffle, Sample, the Sample, Waffle, yeah, VFL and yep. so forth, which are really great leagues of footy. And, mate, the only reason I was jumping on those planes was to get away from Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. And I'd had no expectation of playing anywhere, but you go, they, they put you up for the weekend. And you probably felt, you probably felt important. You, you did. You probably had a purpose yeah. for that one trip. Mate, I sat in front of one club at one time with the coaching staff and that uh, pitching their contract to me with $20,000 cash on the table. You wow. know, basically saying, if you sign now, you can take this money with you. Uh, lucky, I'm glad I didn't sign because it would have been an emotional decision. But, you know, they take $1,000 out of that, give it to you and say, have a good weekend. You know, and I was getting around that around the country, mate, for the next 12 months. So yeah. it, was a, it was a big thing, but... You know, through that transition phase, you hear a lot with athletes now making that transition back into everyday life. And it's not about, oh, poor athlete, you know, blah, blah, blah. It really is a difficult time yeah, because it's not the the stardom that we, we miss. It's not any of that. Well, what we miss is the the routine and the structure. You know, it's where to be, what to do, what to eat, well, how you're to getting, think. You're getting told, like, everything is structured in your life and then you sort of get left to your own demise. And yeah. What do I do? Like, yeah, they, yeah. Don't, they don't equip you with... They don't. They really don't. There's no follow-up call. Yeah. Like, even still today, you know, a long year. Well, I finished up in 2009, so I still haven't even had a phone call from the footy club. So not nine years on. Yeah. See not, you later. Yeah, see you. Well, not asking, hey, Jake, is everything all right? How yeah. can we help? You know, blah, blah, blah. So it is basically, yeah, see you later. Draft comes. New players come in. Yeah. So what do you think about AFL system? It's the worst business model yeah. um, ever. That's another conversation. <laughs> but it's certainly a cutthroat industry, and, and I, I felt the effects of that. But I certainly lacked... As a young man, missing the understanding of I, I, I had to I had depression, yep. uh, and you compile that with losing a purpose, and you compile that with not knowing what you want to do and yeah. how you want to spend the rest of your life. The alcoholism became a big part of that. So did did like alcohol and drugs become your footy? That was like your one release. So yeah. you went from training to playing, and then the rest of your life was up and down. Yep. Now that was gone at the elite level, yep. and you needed to replace it with something. That's sort of what happened. Yeah, spot on. I <clears throat> I use alcohol for me was something I just would go out and party and just you know I was even doing it quite a bit during the last phase of my AFL career, probably a little bit too much and. Yep. Uh, it just became an easy transition for me and I'd go out and carry on and just think it was part of perhaps growing up and I'd get over it and wouldn't think anything of it, but it just got worse and worse. And what I found myself was really enjoying physically and clearly emotionally the environments I was in and 
the alcohol would obviously cause a, a euphoric feeling where I'd feel in, uh, unstoppable and in control and you know that just led after week after week of you know drinking and drinking and in 2011 was the first time that I ever tried a, a, narc, a narcotic recreational drug and we, I just won a premiership at the Port Melbourne Football Club and yeah. um, you know I just lived in the moment stupid me just got caught up in celebrating a premiership uh, we went through the whole year undefeated and I remember thinking to myself you know well, if I'm ever going to try it now's the time yeah and, you're feeling pretty good yeah feeling great yeah. I just had mates around me who I knew and I, at the time yeah, obviously I trusted them and uh, I didn't think anything of it I thought I'll oh, stuff it I'll just get get involved and didn't want to seem soft in front of my mates yeah. and you know went out had a good night no big deal you know got to Wednesday got over it and life kind of went on and you know the next two weeks I found myself in a, a, a different environment similar group of people and drugs come out again and the, the conversation in my mind just changed from being anti-drugs my whole life to kind of well hang on this is quite fun yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I enjoyed it and, you know just do it one more time never again and just my um you know my limbic part of my brain which is the chimp part just got really over you know overwhelmed and just thought yeah, yeah let's do this and have fun and get carried on with it and and yeah, mate, did it again, and that really kicked off, I guess, a chain of conditioning of behaviour addiction in, my, in myself, and, you know, it was week on, week after that for the next couple of years of my life, and, you know, when you wake up every morning using, for the last eight months of that four-year post my career, using every day... So every, every day you were... Every day I was chipping away at... The drug of choice for me was curry cane. So were you, were you working at this stage? Like, yeah, I, I was like self-employed still. Cheap. No, it's not. Yeah. So I was playing local footy, okay. uh, as you spoke about earlier, and yeah. country footy pays you good money. Yep. Uh, and I was still getting paid. So I was um, I was using all, all that money was basically going up my nose. Just or, to or look going after party. Yeah. Just keeping me afloat. And I, I was working. I was self-employed. I had a couple of little small businesses along the way, okay. uh, which was doing some video marketing. And, and how hell are they going? That. Yeah, inconsistent. <laughs> 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 probably the best way to, to describe it so self-employed one of the biggest things you need when being self-employed is motivated and self-driven and <laughs> yeah. at the time I was in and out of that feeling so I mean that was just maybe making bits and pieces of financial success along the way I'd make money here and then not for a long time and I just did what I needed to do, mate, to get through. Yeah. Um, at one point, it got to a, a really bad low. I mean, you combine alcoholism and drug abuse uh, with no direction of career and yeah. no financial stability, it's going to rip all that out of your life. So financially, I got to a point where I was broke. You know, I had 45 cents to my name. Really? So from an AFL player, which, yep. you know, elite sportsman. All money, mate, in the world. And I, yep. I remember when I left my career every year you play AFL footy you get money put aside for you yep. so you get 15 grand put aside for you so I had 60 grand come into my account 12 months after playing AFL footy on top of the money I had in there already so I had well over 6 figures in my account and then about another 16 months to the day after that you know, I, that's when I found myself well I went to Vegas not too long after my um, my career um, okay. and that was I spent a good portion of the money <laughs> <laughs> over there uh, which you know which got a lot of um, hilarious uh, memories from but oh, sure you do, I was um, I was just on a rampage you know and it just became the, the account got lower and lower and lower and I always thought that I could just go get a job and just deal with it and move on and family just thought I had my life stable okay. um, they always looked at things like Oh, you know, it's just part of Jake maybe going through this phase and he's partying quite a bit. Mum and mum didn't want to step in because she didn't want to kind of intervene. Yeah. Uh, which I have conversations with her about it now. It's really hard to hear your mum say 
that she knew something was wrong, but she didn't want to kind of get in get in the way of, of me kind of growing up. And uh, I can only imagine what that would be like for a mum to have to sit and see that, uh, which would be pretty hard. So, yeah, it just got to a point where I mean, one stage I tried to sell flat screen TV and Xbox games at um, a cash converters, which is like a porn store, uh, just to try and get pie, you know, <laughs> yeah, try and live. Yeah. And I just found myself in a really bad state. And the, the stupid thing is that at any time along the journey of that post my career and being caught up in the addiction, I knew I was bad. I knew yeah. I was in a bad place. So I could have easily just spoken to mum and dad or spoken to my best mates and my, my family and I could have got support straight away. And structurally in my life, even today and going through that difficult time, I had what would be considered clinically one of the best support networks yeah. around a person. I had mum and dad, I had my brothers, I had friends, I had a lot of people that could help, but I had this, still that um, stigma around the typical male around getting help, you know, my ego, my pride, yeah. I didn't want family to worry about me, I could, I just thought I could get through this and do it myself, and that held me back from getting help. And the fear of acknowledging that I was perhaps an addict and depression and stuff like that, yeah, it just, I couldn't, a lot of things there I couldn't confront. are pretty confronting to actually own up to yeah, and yeah. take ownership. Especially as like at the time, you know, we're talking 23, 24 year yeah, old so male. You're a kid, yeah. you're not even, no. well, you know? Emotionally, you we're not even developed. You know, 27, yeah. we get to that point and I'm a long way from that and I'm, I'm delaying the process the more I started you know, drinking and, and doing drugs. So yeah. it all just led me to a moment, Dale, where it all just come together, mate, and my life just for me at the time felt like it was just too much. I'd push family and friends away. I lied to my best mate on two occasions. and The girlfriend I had at the time, she, um, she walked out of my life because I was a complete train wreck and I'd, yeah. I'd go out for two, three days in a row and, and she wouldn't hear from me. I'd come home from my... Port Melbourne in my apartment in Port Melbourne and she had a bags packed and just walked straight out one night and I just remember thinking you know this is just this is it you know like I had no connection to the world I was in a really bad position financially and clearly alcohol and drugs was driving my, my purpose now and I just thought you know what's the point you know just, people can move on perhaps without me and I started having some real clear suicide ideation around you know this is something that needs to be done and I had thought about it in the in during. So you you the, thought about a little bit about. Yeah, it I, I had thought about it, but I never got to the point where I considered that you know I could take my own life yeah. and really start delving in, delving and that, into no, and that it wouldn't matter, like that. Correct. No yeah. one would care. That's right, and I always thought that no, I couldn't possibly do it to my family. Yeah. I shut it out pretty quickly, but I'd got myself to a point, mate, where it just all become all together at one at one stage and. I went out and partied quite hard for four days straight. Went out on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. I hadn't slept and clearly extremely intoxicated and had a lot of narcotics in my system. And along the way, I've done cocaine was a you know a big part of my intake, but also I tried speed and heroin and just stuff that I just get my hands on, you know, to make myself feel better. And it just got to a stage, like I said, it all just come together and. And yeah, come home on a Monday morning and, you know, myself in my bathroom and I, I remember looking myself in the mirror and just thinking about my life and it was just a real black shadow and I couldn't feel like I, I was numb. I had no sense of emotional um, awareness and for me, suicide was the only option to move forward because I, I, I genuinely felt like it was the best thing for my family. I genuinely felt like my friends could stop calling me, my mum and dad would have to stop worrying about me. Uh, where in fact we look at suicide in our communities as a real selfish thing because we can leave a lot of people behind, yeah. a lot of unanswered questions where, for me, I, I felt like I was doing it for everyone else around me. I didn't think for a moment what it meant to me as a person and I didn't clearly understand that what I was doing 
or potentially what I would be doing would be handing that baton of pain and that over to my family. And yep. for them to live with that for the rest of their lives would be unbearable. And I didn't, not, that didn't come into my mind. It was about them and trying to help them move on. And the, the mind of a suicidal person will create that story to try and justify the decision of worthlessness and not being here. And, you know, that was enough for me physically to, to attempt my own life. And, you know, lucky for me, I... I, uh, a hairdryer cord had snapped and, you know, when I sat on, my, on the bathroom floor and, you know, I was really in a really bad state crying and just couldn't get my head around where and why. And the, I guess the real victimised mentality had all just come crushing in and all that type of the questions that came with it. And, and then my phone had rang and it was my old man and I actually answered the call and off the back of that, you know, it's probably the one thing I think probably saved my life. Yeah, the hairdryer cord that, that snapped and uh, I get that physically, but... I probably would have come to the conclusion in my mind I probably would have tried again and yeah, yeah. Made, made it successful. And for Dad to call me then was the last person in my phone I think would ever call me. Um, and for me, for some unknown reason now, as to why I even answered that call, perhaps I wasn't clearly in the right state of mind just to answer it and think, oh, yeah, who is this? Um, you know, just the, the way things life for me at that time pushed me in the right direction at the right time. Um, and then Mum and Dad obviously knew what was going on and come in from the farm and while they were driving in they had a friend of mine come around the apartment pick me up take me back to their house and when mum and dad had rocked up mate I can remember just feeling this overwhelming feeling of just um embarrassment yeah I just I couldn't believe it you couldn't handle it no I couldn't handle I just sat on the couch I couldn't look at my mum and dad in the face and I couldn't believe what I just had tried to do like and it all just kind of hit me as to you know how how stupid could you be and just the embarrassment and the, um, yeah, I just felt like I let everyone down and just compiled in. And Mum and Dad took me back to the farm and spent a couple of days there. And, and I just slept for, for a day straight and then went back, uh, went into my, an office of a psychologist, Dr Maddie Clements, her name was, and, and sat with her. And the first time I had the opportunity to hear and see the impact I was having on my family. Okay. And I'd never, ever seen that before. It was all about selfish Jake and what my world yes. was about and how the addiction was affecting me. Um, but I had a phone, heard a phone call. My psychiatrist got, psychologist got her phone out and put it on loudspeaker and, and called my mum uh, and said to my mum, look, we're going to send Jake home to the farm, but before we do that, I need to make sure that um, he doesn't have any guns to come home and, and shoot himself. And, wow. And, I mean, to hear that, and it was just silence, and then it was a lump in my mum's throat that I could hear. Yeah. And for the first time, I just, it just hit me, and I was going, jeez, you know, what, what are you doing? Like, I have to get some help. I, I, li- I could just hear for the first time the pain in my mum, and, you know, who I obviously love. I can count on one hand, you know, how many games she hasn't been to football in my career. And um, for her to hear that um, really motivated me to get some change. And then off the back of that, I went into a rehab program in Dandenong with a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Brendan Murphy, and worked with him on, a, on an in-and-out program and over the next yeah, um, six, eight months of my life. And, and that really kind of built the uh, building, I guess, the framework of, um, I guess, sustainable recovery through, through my rehab, uh, which educated me around mental health and drug and alcohol addiction and what it meant and, and how important it is to create uh, good people around you, environments, but utilising them and how to create strategies and techniques into your own life to deal with the mental health issues. And the biggest wake-up call for me early on was when he said to me one day, Jake, we're not here to figure out your addictions, mate. We're here to figure out why 
you need to use drugs and alcohol to feel better. And I almost laughed at him and go, what are you talking about? You know, like, yeah. I've clearly got a drug and alcohol problem. But once he explained it to me, um, it was the underlying issue it was the mental health, you know, the lack of purpose and the unknown yeah. and stuff like that. It was the fear that that created for me and the alcohol and that replaced that feeling. So once I kind of got my head around that, it was quite easy for me to make some change. Um, I relapsed once, um, which was a, it is a part of rehabilitation, which I didn't know at the time, but it was a kind reminder at the perfect time that um, I'm not in control. Yeah. And as much as I felt like I was getting better and moving forward, it was a nice slap in the face to remind myself, hey, you're not Superman again. Yeah. Stop thinking that you're, you're eating a bit because you're not. Yeah. Um, and that really, ever since then, it's been a, a great transition um, in, you know, to implement a lot of strategy into my life, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm just sitting here, mate, and the way you can talk about that now, um, mate, that's, I'm proud of hearing that. Like, that's, yeah, geez, that, how long did that take you to be able to talk? Obviously, we're going to talk about all the amazing work you're doing now and stuff yeah. like that, mate, but to physically be able to talk about that, um, because I can imagine how many lives you've already changed and saved with that. How long did that take you to be able to, you know, tell your story. Yeah, it's, a, it's another great question, mate. And I get asked that quite a lot in yep. terms of... Um, for me, I talk about the athletic blueprint in terms of our, our mindset. And one thing I've learned, one thing us athletes do really well, and I think you'd resonate with this, having played sport your whole life and what you do today. But you, you grow up, you learn everything there is to know about hard work, dedication, commitment. So our framework and our skeleton of a blueprint in terms of success in life for people... Um, is actually a really um, terrific thing to tap into. So once I kind of come out the back end of my uh, rehab and that, I sat down with my psychiatrist and a couple of mentors I had. Once I identified what I want to do the rest of my life, and that was obviously spending time in this space, a mental health space, and talking about it and getting out there and sharing my story, it was actually quite easy for me to talk about it because at the time, this is over four years ago now, and at the time there wasn't where we are today. I think the last four years in our industry we've come even further yeah. than what we did the first couple four. So there wasn't really anyone out there really talking about it. So I didn't have anyone to kind of measure myself against or look at and say, okay, that's what I'll do. Yeah. I'm, I'm inspired by that. Well, you're sort of a pioneer in, in a way. Yeah, especially in the sporting space. Yeah. I mean, there were people I used to listen to, a guy named Eric Thomas in America who's a, a motivational speaker and... I was always around that type of thing and surrounded myself with positive psychology that I learned through my rehab and that. I used to listen to his audios every morning to get me in the right uh, frame of mind. and um, So I kind of use a lot of examples through him, but talking about your journey was uh, an interesting thing. I kind of, I guess I had the mindset where like, it was pretty simple. It might sound quite, you know, dumbed down fashion, but <laughs> it was kind of like, well, if I'm not doing it, then who else is? Yep. And that's the kind of, that's all I kind of needed. For me to go out and talk and I sat down one day and I just wrote my my story in a real kind of um, basic fashion in terms of how if I ever did how would I talk about it and then I just had the confidence I guess off that and I just started talking at a couple of schools but I never went into full detail it's just kind of about the depression yep and the more confidence I got talking about my journey the more I started incorporating all these different avenues of what what I went through and that and Early on, what happened was is that <clears throat> the more confident I got, the more I started talking about it and opening it up, and then more people started becoming aware of it. Okay. And then other media outlets started getting interested in it because of my AFL yeah, background. Yep. 
And at the time, I, I just I had the mindset of saying yes to everything. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, no worries, no worries. And the next thing you know, I put myself on a platform, which was 60 Minutes at the start of last year, where we did a story around myself and the suicide epidemic we're having in sport here in Australia. Um, and I didn't, I didn't expect what happened off the back of that. And that was just a, an influx of people all around the country, from sporting clubs, from individuals, from families, to people that have been through addiction, just reaching out and saying how they connected and how well, um, <clears throat> how great the story was and so forth and wants to get help and maybe incorporate their program into our foundation or whatever. But one bit of advice I can give to anyone who wants to talk their story and, and actually um, try and inspire people is to probably sit down and spend a little bit more time than I did getting your head around the impact that that could possibly have for yourself. Okay. Because so I... Do you, you know, sorry to interrupt. That's do, you, right. do you regret it in a way? No, like, is I, that what you're saying? I, I don't regret it. I okay. certainly don't regret it. There's no way at all I regret what I do because like you said, we, I can... I save people's lives yeah, through, through the story, you, you know, Correct, and, yep. and that's obviously a really a, a massive benefit and the reason why I did it at the, from the very beginning. But what I did early was that I, I told the world everything. Okay. And at the time, I just didn't understand the boundaries and I didn't understand there wasn't any boundaries as to what you should and shouldn't and maybe should I talk about my suicide experience. Um, yes, it's going to help people, and open people but what, what's it mean for me okay. as a person? Because um, once the 60 minutes... Once the 60-minute thing had happened, and I, after that, I was travelling the country everywhere talking about it to everyone. And then it's not the story as much as it was the, the exhaustion yeah, yeah. around it. You know, I got to a point uh, towards the end of last year where it all kind of just hit me. And I was like, out? Yeah, I was just burnt out. Yeah. Right? Emotionally, I was burnt out. Because yeah. I'd literally, and I literally have told Australia everything about me. Yeah. You know, and there's nothing, there's nothing private anymore. And when you find yourself in that position, you're like, Jesus Christ, you know, well, well what more is there to say? <laughs> That's it. Everyone, yeah, knows, everyone knows. Blue yeah. Correct. And if, if, I, if you Google my name, what comes up now is depression, suicide, drug, drug and alcohol. And, yeah. Um, you know, yes, I'm proud of all the work that I've done, but it just, I remember I did it for so, I did it so quickly, so soon, uh, that it, it just hit me at one point in the last year. I'm like, geez, I need to take a bit of time away here and, and reflect on what one, what have I done? And two, you know, is, is this something I want to continue to keep doing? And it's pretty quickly to get my head around the fact that, yeah, I, I, this is what I love. It's my and passion. Yeah. I want to keep doing it. But I had to build in some framework around it um, rather than just getting out and just talking about it, which is great. And I still do it. But I certainly have better um, things in place around me structurally yeah. um, to support myself. So every time I talk, I'd always leave talks on a high. Okay. You know, I always feel really euphoric. I feel amazing. And then the reality of life is, is that once those chemicals remove themselves, you, you can have a bit of a crash. Yep. So what I was actually doing was, is I was experiencing the MCG feeling running in front of 80,000 people. Yep. Uh, and then once the game had gone away, I'd find myself in a bit of a low. So I was actually recreating a lot of the same issues. So the, that the same ups and downs, and which you had all these issues with, mm. you'd gone and figured yourself out, but now you're helping other people, but you were actually finding another way Yep. to get back on that sort of destructive path but in a positive way exactly right yeah. and I hadn't identified with that until I hit a wall okay until I'd realised I'd gone hang on a minute um, this is great but what's it meaning for me as a person yep. because as you know unless you're healthy and fit people around you know benefit from no it no way so what I another thing what I was doing was is that I found myself towards the end of last year is that when I was up presenting in front of people people would probably have the um I guess the perception that I'm a really kind of outgoing, kind of interactive person, where actually away from everything, I'm actually really 
I have to keep to myself. So are you an extrovert or introvert? I, I would say I'm more of an introvert. Okay. Yeah, where people on the outside looking in and what I do is probably look like, yeah, he's an extrovert. When I'm actually, I'm very reserved in a lot of things I like to do. So I was trying to find a balance as to what that is for me. Uh, because I would find myself before, you know, before I step into a corporate thing, I've spoken at Maya, BHP, Medibank, Boost Juice, uh, Linfox, all these massive companies around Australia. Before I'd step into doing that, I found myself having to put on a mask again. Yeah, yeah. I found myself having to put myself in a position where I need to be someone here and I'm not actually in touch with that person because I'm not feeling myself. So um, once that bit started becoming more evident, I started realising that, hang on a minute, I need to um, get some framework around this and start working out um, yeah, my mindset yeah. before getting into these type of environments. Um, so that was really important and that's a real kind of reminder again around my mental health, you know, my depression because it, it comes and goes and it, it's in dribs and drabs and it's more now for me <clears throat> not having the highs and lows. It's more about having that flat line of consistency yeah. in, of in the right area. Yeah. In between that's right. chaos and boring. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So it's about getting that kind of um, stability again in the way that I go about my life every day in, day out. And then the other avenue as well, and obviously I deal with that today and I'm on top of everything and it's fantastic. I love what I do. I'm very passionate about it. But the other thing is when you open yourself up to do what I did across the country and work with so many people, what you do is unknowingly you're opening your doors to everyone else who needs help. Yeah. So what I was experiencing was was just hundreds and hundreds Burden of like people dumping stuff on Facebook you. Facebook yeah. and emails and everything like that was coming through. And because I was Mr. Fix-It wanting to help everyone, yeah, I'd be up mornings and mornings after 3am, 4am responding to everyone's issues wow. and stuff like that. So that compiled to a lot of those issues. So when I talk about setting up the frameworks around me, uh, one thing our foundation, our cell locker room has done well the last two years is set up that welfare, uh, welfare referral network. So we now have a welfare team. So when I go out and speak at corporates and so forth, I make You're myself... not giving your email and saying, hit me up. Yeah, I do to an extent. So I, always, I make myself accessible. Yeah. So I allow people to contact me, but I make it very clear that I will, I will help first step. Yeah. Um, and then the, a part of that first step is connecting them with our welfare team. Uh, and then from there, our, our girl, Taylor, who, um, she's our welfare manager, takes over. Cool. Because uh, she's clinically, you know, advised yeah. in, that, in that stuff. And so. it's not, and you don't, you can't, you, but you are changing the world, but you can't fix everyone. That's, that's right. Probably, it's yeah. probably finding that out yeah. the hard way. Correct. And like I said, you, I, didn't have, um, I didn't have a blueprint as to, here, Jake, here's how you do it. Yeah. And go, go and succeed in it. Yep. It was kind of finding it out along the way. And one of the things I found out along the way was that. Yep. Was that, um, you know, and that's my, my, um, my advice to anyone who has been through a story and wants to talk about it, uh, really define, I guess, how much of your life you want to indulge. And I don't regret telling everyone everything. I just, I regret not um, setting up the framework around me early enough. Um, yeah. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind because when you do leave a, a session of talking about your life, you do feel great because you know, you know you've impacted on people, but the reality is that you're going to come crashing down it can be an emotional rollercoaster in itself. Yeah, and I, I must admit, like, I do a lot of talking, like yourself, and I've recently opened up about a few things that have gone on in my life, in lows and things, not not to your extreme, but um, one thing I've found is that you can only figure things out by doing it. So you said to have things in structure in place, but you can't put things in place if you don't know what you're doing. No, Does that right. make sense? Like, yeah, yeah, I know it all right. sounds well, I haven't done this well, but how would you know that works? No, that's it. And yeah. that's where I think... Um, 
I'm very big on as well. For, like for example, I, do, I used to work in the juvenile centre. So yep. with a, I'll give a quick example of why the importance of role modelism and mentorship is really important in people's lives. Because I had a young man seek meets, come to me and ask advice around becoming a father. Um, and I immediately didn't know how or what advice to give because I'm not a father. Yep. So what I said to him, I go, mate, let's talk about who adults in your life that are fathers that you look up to. So what we did was we, we found out who that person was and then we, we helped him sit down with that, that father and talk about you know, what it's like to become a father. Because I can't give advice on something I've that you haven't done. done about. Yeah. So I'm very big on anyone in life, whether it's career, business, you know, whatever it may be, um, to find the people that are doing it and you know, what seems to be succeeding in it and just reach out to them and say, look, I'm looking at doing this. I'd love to sit down with you and talk about what you've done. And there's not a person, anyone would be in the eyes of society successful. Um, no one I've met anywhere along the journey where if you reach out to them and ask them, look, I just want some advice. Or some, there's not anyone I don't know who wouldn't say, no. no, sorry, mate, I can't share any IP with you. Or I wouldn't share anything yeah. uh, with you because a big part of what people do that are successful is actually trying to, um, I guess, mentor it's people the giving. around us. It's yeah, giving it is feeling, the giving. You know, yeah. you feel kindness. When you give kindness or you're giving, yep. it's a ripple effect. Yep. That you actually feel good. That dopamine hit, you know, that we all love. Correct. And it's also yep. nice, as you just said. Yeah, so once again, you use that. You know, look at people around you that are doing it and then sit down with them and, and talk to them about it and what you want to do. And just because they'll tell you what they've done wrong. Yep. And they'll tell you what to avoid. The, um, the reality is that not everyone goes away and implements all those different things. So the likelihood of you taking over the world in their industry is very unlikely. So the, the giving back side of it is very easy. Yeah. It's the motivation of the other person receiving it that's going to determine the success from them. So, um, yeah, so it is about yeah, jumping into it and finding out the hard way. Yep. Uh, but early on, you can do some things and sit down with some people that can tell you what to avoid, perhaps, and, and what not to do. Yeah, and, and you just mentioned, obviously, mentors and talking people and stuff like that. I'm a big believer in having mentors and good people in your life. Yep. Um, how have you found yours? How have they come into your life? Yeah, so I, when I set up, so moving into our side of the locker room and why yep. I set it up, off the back of that, I, off the back of my experience, clearly our side of the locker room is a byproduct of what I'd gone through. Yep. I'd seen an example of local, my local sporting club, two young men had an ice problem, and um, the mum and dads who run our local clubs have no idea, didn't have any idea where to go, what to do, or anything like that, because they're nine to five workers themselves, and they're committee members at the best of times. So I, it took about six months for anything intervened, and I thought something needs to be done about this. So I, I come up with this great idea of our sort of locker room, the program will do, and I sat down with a mentor of mine who was just a successful business person, okay. and sat down with him and just told him for 45 minutes, didn't, he didn't say a word about everything I was going to do, and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of it, I'll never forget it, he finished his latte, and he looked at me, he goes, Jake, don't be the change. I don't wait for change. Be be the change. Powerful. And I just it just he got up, paid for the coffees, and left. And he left me there uh, for about half an hour, just in silence, <laughs> trying to think, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> but it, it was a real great because what I did, I found myself procrastinating and thinking about this. And yeah. I changed this. He goes, mate, don't wait for it. Just be it. Yeah, great advice. Uh, and that's where I just yeah I jumped into it. Yeah, you know, we were talking about that just just a minute ago, and just got out there and just started doing what we do and the program itself. And actually, when that cafe, when I had that conversation with. Off the back of that, I just I wrote the business plan on a bit of paper, um, then and there, and it's and obviously evolved since then. But it just gave me enough to kind of go, yep, yeah, this is what I want to do. Um, I'm going to go out and do it. Yeah, cool. And once again, it might be the athletic blueprint. Me, it was kind of like people would say to me, oh, you know, yeah, maybe don't do that, or it's not been done before, and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. I'm just kind of like, well, well, you just wait and see. Yeah, you know, I'll just go and do it, and you can just thank me later. And that's kind of where the motivation got to where our sort of locker room kind of started, but. Mentorship is really big. 
my dad and I growing up um, was a typical teen- teenager relationship. We weren't really that close, but the experience I had gone through had really galvanised our relationship. So my father now is a really big mentor of mine, and my dad for nearly 30 years of his life has been struggling with depression issues, which I didn't know until we connected off the back of my own experience. Yep. So that's really brought us together. So my dad and I are really, really close. Um, I've got a couple other people as well. Obviously, I look at mentors not in terms of um, one person overarching your whole life. Yeah. I look at them strategically in different areas. You know, So there's fitness, you know, there's business. Um, so business, I've got two people that sit on my, my board. Uh, one name's Greg Valleys, who just tried to call me before, actually. Greg, is, uh, <laughs> he's, he's my accountant. But he's a very successful guy. He's just got a really great business mind. He's helped me set up a lot of governance and a lot of um, support for our foundation. Uh, we've got another guy who you know. His name's uh, Dipper. You know, um, yep. you know, he's a Hawthorne legend, legend champion. Brownlow medalist. He's become a really strong another father figure of mine, but just in the way of life. Um, him and I have been through a lot of similar type of things, just in being let down by people and so forth. And... You know, him and I connect really, really well. Um, you know, like I said, different areas in my life, I utilise different people yep. uh, to support because I find that really, really important. Uh, I yep. think and I think that's great advice that there's yep. no one mentor that's the best at everything. There's no, no. There's no such thing. No. You know, and the more good people you can surround yourself with, the better. And now, we've talked about it a lot, but outside yep. the locker room, mate, and that's one of the... I wanted to get your story mm-hmm. and people understand it. Now, I want to share the amazing stuff you're doing. Yep. Um, obviously, a lot of listeners of mine are teachers, parents... Um, and so forth like that. So um, your program, Domly has worked with sport clubs, but now you're in schools, you're in corporates, you're doing all that. So explain a little bit about what you do, mate. You know, obviously, obviously your story and for people who's particularly story, um, teaching, storytelling is the only way to learn. Mm. If you tell me a story or listen, if you start giving me some facts, I'll probably start looking out the window. Yeah. And a lot of people are the same. So yeah. your story is really powerful, impactful, and makes a change. So yeah. how have you put that into outside the locker room? Yeah, it's uh, so early on, the I guess the brand outside the locker room <clears throat> was about just getting back to sporting clubs and you know using my story to hopefully influence in a positive way and uh, bring the awareness to mental health and issue that we're having. And that was nearly four years ago now. The program's evolved over uh, over that over that period, but early on it had to be driven by my voice because I, I obviously behind every great charity and foundation because every single one of them all do great work. There's a story behind it as to why they got started, and in order for people to to buy into the program and understand it, I had to share it from the very beginning. Yeah. So that was about me getting out to as many sporting clubs as I could. The first year we only worked with about fifteen sporting clubs. Uh, now we've worked with about 180 over the last 16 months across the country. Wow. So it's grown quite a, quite a lot in a small period of time. But what it is, and in a nutshell, though, it, what we are, we're a welfare and education program. We target majority, our, our niche, I guess, our market is, is sport, local community sporting clubs, but we also work with elite clubs as well. Uh, so the Wall, the Waffle Clubs, a couple of Sandful VFL clubs, and now a couple of NEFL, but majority are community sporting clubs. But the welfare component is probably our biggest point of difference, and I was very passionate about the start setting this. There's two reasons I want to set this program up. The first one is is that um, it was more of a legacy for me okay. as a person because I didn't want ha- I didn't want have what I've gone through to be for no reason. So I wanted to set up a program that will be remembered for the next thirty years. So when I step away from this foundation in two three times, uh, two three years time. Um, and bring in some new leadership and new ideas. I want to look back when I'm 35, 40 and say, you know what, that, I did that. Yeah. And that, that is because of what I went through and it wasn't for nothing. So the legacy part of it for me is a really, really big thing. 
Uh, and the next reason was is that I didn't want to just be an awareness program. I wanted to offer people um, attainable help and sustainable help. So the welfare component is that we offer a free, safe, secure platform for young adults and families involved in, in local sport, predominantly at the time, to reach out and use our welfare team. So we've got a free app that all of our players and clubs download, and through that app is a platform that can message our team through that app. Oh, so it's, it's communication anytime. Correct, anytime, wow. anywhere. Um, it can, well, we obviously, we're not an emergency platform. Yeah. It can take up to um, 48 hours for our team to get back in touch, but we have the accessibility for a young person who might not want to talk to mum and dad or... Uh, might feel just silly about talking about their way they're feeling. They can get on their phone. They can sit in their their you know their bedroom and just talk to us through that through that app. And then we get back in touch with them, um, talk to them about what they're going through. And then our role as our welfare team is to identify what the next steps are for them. So we we've got a great referral network across Australia. Uh, we've got partnerships with people like counselling and psychology and doctor networks and stuff like that. Uh, and we obviously incorporate parents and adults into the conversation, and then help. Uh, mentor that process for them moving forward. So that's a really, really important part of what we what we offer. Yeah. And then there's the education program. So we come out and we roll out education visits per per club or school per per year. And they there's a non-negotiable, which is the mental health program that they have to do. And then the clubs themselves can customise one of our different. We've got what we call modules. Yeah. So they can pick anything from gambling, alcohol, drugs, inclusion. Uh, multiculturalism, all these different programs that we run, and then the clubs can look at it and go, well, that's that's relevant for us now. Yep. So we have a lot of junior clubs in our junior program that do cyberbullying, social media workshops that we do. Um, so it's about customising it for them and their needs for a club. Uh, but those two education visits per club is really important because it focuses on prevention, but also gives us two opportunities throughout the year that we and our team can come out, which we have a facilitator program and our community ambassador program, where we come out, we humanise our program, so we share stories through, um, you know, not just my own story, but people in the community that yep. perhaps have been local leaders and local sports people can come out and really connect. And you talk about storytelling, that's a big um, driver of our program, encouraging people to talk about their stories, uh, which, you know, involuntary um, encourages other people to, to open up, up and, and talk about their own yep. story. But us coming out talking about depression and suicide and drug and alcohol addiction perhaps is one thing, but us having that platform behind it where people can actually, okay, you've told me to reach out, yeah. I can actually reach out and get some help, uh, which is really, really important. So that's what we are, mate. That's what we do as a foundation, and it's been going really, really well. So like I said, the last couple of years, we've, our program's grown now, so we're, uh, we're in Queensland, Adelaide and Perth, wow. uh, here, majority here in Victoria, because yeah. that's where we're located, but... Um, yeah, so we, we've now developed a, what we call a community engagement program, uh, which for our local sporting clubs gives them the opportunity to tap into their local school system. So local sporting clubs don't have the resources or time to develop a schools program. So what we've done is we've created that resource for them. So let's say a, um, a bond, also let's say look at Shepherd and Swans, where okay. you're from. Yep. So Shepherd and Swans, yeah, we could go back to them and say, look, guys, we've got this community engagement program, which is about involving your club back into your schools. So we would come in <coughs> and develop, and our facilitator program would engage with the local schools. So a couple of schools up there, and then we we get the sporting club 
to send out a couple of players or committee members to come out and get involved in that delivery of that of that program. Powerful. It is really powerful stuff because it, one, it's the parents can see at the school or how great you know the Swannies are doing stuff yeah, in yeah, the yeah. school because yep. they can wear the polos and pull up banners and all that type of stuff. Uh, but we're doing educated topics around resilience and soccer bullying and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. So it's a really great platform for the clubs locally to say, hey, we're 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 getting back in touch with our community. We're engaging with them, and that's the locker room is that vehicle that we're using to be able to do that. Mate, that's, uh, that's really powerful stuff. And yeah. um, on the show notes, I'll have obviously links to your website and everything. Yep. If you go on there, you can check it all out because um, what a powerful thing to actually get the community working together to, yep. to promote these things, you know, the, to get young kids going the right way. And I think that's, mate, that's awesome. And just listening to you talk today is oh, unbelievable. Now, I've always got. Three questions, a little, just throw on, a little bit different here. Cool. So three questions that I like yeah. to uh, ask, a little bit different and um, most of my guests. So is there one question that you wish people would ask you more? Uh, one question you wish people ask me more? Yeah, so oh, there's wow. a question that people don't ask you that you're like, I would actually like to talk about that more. It's probably a hard one, mate. It is a hard one. You, you put me on the spot there. Yeah, it's a question that people would like to ask me more. Um, I think... I, I can tell you what I, I can tell you what I get asked the most, and the two quick questions I get asked the most is, Jake, why do you do what you do? Yeah. The second one is, how do I help someone who think who uh, who I think has depression? Yeah. I think the one the question I love people to ask more is not necessarily as much as how do I how do I help someone who I think has depression, but more I'd like the, the question to be directed more as Jake, how do I how do I um, ensure that myself uh, yeah. um, can be better prepared. Um, you know, for uh, an issue in life, whether yeah. it be mental health or depression, because a big part of my journey and my education with my public speaking I do is about that wellness side of things, but more that holistic approach to becoming responsible for your own mental health and almost preparing yourself for <clears throat> resilient factors throughout life. You know, yeah. we, we all go through things that we can't control and so forth, but creating strategies and mechanisms is really important. Um, so that question, to answer your question, would be that you know, more, wish people, more people would ask yeah. me, how do I, how do I better support myself? Yeah, worrying um, about others. Then worrying about others yeah. so much because if, if my opinion is that we, if we, if we show leadership in ourselves and we create those um, uh, patterns, I guess, and people can see that, we inspire those around us to get involved in what we are doing. Um, so that would probably help uh, answer that question. No, I think a really good thing is I don't think you can actually help anybody until you've helped yourself. No, that's and right. like, if you're putting on a mask, you can do that, but deep down you're a fraud. Yep. And I talk about that a lot, I was a fraud, you know, and yep. if you're not actually happy within yourself, then you're not going to make any change. So I think that's a great question. Yep. Now, 18-year-old um, Jake, if you could go back, like Marty McFly in a time machine, yep. and give yourself one bit of advice that you've obviously learned along your journey, what mm. would that one bit of advice you'd give yourself as an 18-year-old? Yeah, the one bit of advice I would probably give is, I think, having listened... Your listeners now listen to my <coughs> to my story, is that um, you know life has got a, a tremendous way of working itself out. Yep. Um, when I was eighteen years of age, I was so stressed about what tomorrow is going to be like, and you know it caused a lot of stress and anxiety clearly in my life, and trying to control so many things. And I think if I had my time again, I would say to myself, you know what, just take a deep breath. Yeah, life will sort itself out, and um, it has a tr- tremendous way of doing that. But keeping it specific to me. I was so worried about becoming an AFL player that I think we'd all agree today that I've played in front of nearly 90,000 people in front of the, in the MCG uh, playing AFL football. And my whole life I thought that would be my biggest achievement. Um, and obviously now it's probably on the bottom of the list of the things that I've achieved in my, in my life with the foundation and so forth. So 
even though what we might think at the age of 18 is going to be determined how we, we live our lives, um, in 10 years' time from that day, you could be doing something completely different. Um, and that's a big thing I have with school kids as well, asking them, yeah, what do you want to do the rest of my life? They say, oh, I don't know. I say, perfect, great, because yeah. you know, not knowing is, is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, finding out what you love and what you're passionate about and moving in that direction is, is the best advice I can give. So... Yeah, probably about just staying uh, focused on living in the moment, not worried too much about you know life later on. Yeah, because yeah, you can't control it, can you? You can't. You know, there's aspects that you can, but the way my life has worked out, clearly football for me was the last thing that I was put here for. Yeah. Uh, where in fact I thought that was the only reason I'd be yeah. here for, uh, which is which is quite an important message to share. I think that, and just summarise, I reckon just, uh, and it's a big thing these days. Live. In the moment, be present. It's such a, yep. it's a, it's a very simple thing to say, but very hard thing to actually execute yeah, these days. Sure. So I think that's great <laughs> advice, mate. And the last one, and um, I think this is pretty obvious, but what impact do you want to have on the world when you're done? So um, at your funeral, <laughs> you know, it's a long way off yet. Um, what impact will people say that you've had on the world, Jay? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think I. In terms of the community on the outside, because uh, there's two assets of people in my life. There's my circle, which is my fiance and my immediate family. Yep. And then outside of that, we have the wider community. I think the a lot of things that I can't control is the wider community's perception on me. Um, and uh, majority of the time, 99.9% of the time, it's always really positive. And obviously, I want to I want to leave a legacy behind that people can say, you know, I've, I've changed perhaps the focus in our industry and, and brought a light to awareness and mental health. And obviously the, the obvious question there would be, uh, sorry, the answer would be, I want to save people's lives. Yeah, yeah. Which along the way is, I think, a, a byproduct of us doing what we do in, in this industry. However, I think at the end of the day, when I get to that point, perhaps you mentioned about the funeral aspect, is that I kind of want, the opinions that matter to me the most are those people within my inner circle. Uh, and those, those opinions are of my, my soon-to-be wife and my family. And I want one day my kids to look at their father uh, and to be inspired. And I'll, I want them to look at their dad and say, you know, did you, do, did you really do that? You know? yeah. And I'm talking about the foundation there. Yeah, of course. And that when we talk about legacy for me is about, is about my last name. Because for so long it's all been about footy and sport and that type of thing. But I've really kind of shaped the way moving forward how um, my last name being Edwards has actually created something different in a completely different different space um, so I think I would love people to look at me you know when I get that point in my life as to a bit of a, um, a pioneer I guess in, in challenging the mental health system and going about it in a different way but also along the way saving a lot of people's lives and opening up the the light for a lot of people that may be struggling but pioneering I guess the mental health industry for me is a big part of what I'm, what I'm trying to do yep. uh, and trying to take it in a new direction uh, and to say, hey, well, there's no one way, right way to do it. Uh, we just use sport in a way to help people um, to get through what they're going through. So I hope that answers your yeah, question. No, no, it it does, a, mate. And, and to be honest, uh, you've inspired me today with your story and I can get, I can already have done over 180 clubs or schools, corporate, sports clubs. Like, mate, it's amazing. Your legacy is already there. I think the impact you've had in the world That's is... Right. 
powerful lads. And uh, I just appreciate you taking the time today, sharing your story, because um, the more people that can talk about these things and get it out there and um, show you vulnerability, you know, like that's vulnerability on a next level, what you've shown today, mate. And I, um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time today. So thanks for that, mate. I really appreciate you. No, you're welcome, man. Keep doing what you're doing. These, these things are really important, um, you know, and keep reaching out to people that you want to talk with and share their stories. So, um, yeah, mate, you're inspiring many other people, I'm sure. Perfect. Thanks, Jake.